welcome to the Tebby podcast from The Evidence-Based Investor. I'm Robin Powell. This podcast is brought to you by Regis Media, which provides financial advice and planning firms with high-quality video content. In this episode, we're exploring the possibility that we're entering an era of lower investment returns. So, are we? And if we are, what can we do about it? Enjoy the podcast, and if you haven't already, why not subscribe to it, or better still, leave a review. We'd love to hear your views. You need to be an optimist to be an equity investor. You have to believe that the proceeds of capitalism will continue to reward your patience and discipline. But you also need to be realistic, and that means accepting the very strong possibility that returns will be lower in the future than they have been in the past. Why is that? Well, simply put, as of now, that's May 2022, equity markets are trading at or near all-time highs. And the higher the price you pay for a security, the lower the expected return going forwards. So what other evidence is there that equity returns will be lower in the future? And if it's true, what, if anything, can or should investors do about it? I've been talking to Antti Ilmanen, an investment strategist at AQR Capital Management in Greenwich, Connecticut. He's the author of a new book called Investing Amid Low Returns, Making the Most When Markets Offer the Least. It's a follow-up to his first book, simply titled Expected Returns, published in 2011. I started by asking him how have his opinions changed over the last 11 years? There is a common core there, um, I, I believe, largely in the same things. Um, it's, by the way, it is very evidence-based, so I am quite happy to be talking to, to you with, with, with your <laughs> podcast. So that's always been a goal, goal, goal for me. But so, so, uh, but there's been there's been a lot of learning both from our own research, other people's research, uh, just just sort of more historical facts and another ten years of data. But then I would sort of highlight maybe like one feature is that I have I've become even more in favor of diversification and humble about tactical timing. I think my my book had I the first book had quite quite a I think a spirit of contrarian. Uh, timing, even though I was always talking about being humble about it, but but let's say I've become even more humble about about that. And then, so that's that's one thing. And then another thing that I must highlight is, is um, appreciating even better the importance of patience and stickiness and how hard it is in practice when we, when we face some bad years. So it is that it's just so human that we, we collectively, we expect more consistent uh, performance than is fair or reasonable to plausible to uh, expect in a real world competitive markets, um, and so it's very hard for us to stick with these strategies. And 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 so so somehow that that means that beliefs matter as much as evidence. So Cliff sometimes says, figure out what you believe in and stick with it. Mm. Um, 
I think like we we managed to retain our beliefs in value strategy, the, the, the most difficult recent drawdown, but I, I totally sympathize those who don't. And I think I suspect it will come back later when we talk mm. how um, it mm. is important for investors to think, think what other strategies with which they can stick with. Absolutely. And um, so the book um, is no secret because I, I suppose it's in, in the title, really. Uh, it, it really focuses on you know, how to invest in you know, a, a period of lower expected returns. You use the phrase in the book, investment winter. Um, you know, you're not the only person, obviously, to be talking about an investment winter. Um, I, I remember um, uh, speaking to Elroy Dimson a, a, a few months ago about this, and he's absolutely convinced that we're going to see lower expected returns in, in the future. But um, I would ask you as a, as, as a layman, you know, how do we know? How, how can we be sure that we are entering a period of lower returns? Yeah, I think sure is always, I, 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 I'm so sort of, I don't know, cautious. The sure, there's never sure. I could, I could tell a story how we can have another 10 strong years, but it's a really difficult story to believe in, I think. So, so the, the quick answer is, that the low starting yields are a very weighty answer to future long-term returns. And we really haven't had as low starting yields uh, when you look across the board for assets um, virtually ever. And uh, and this is even before I think about like mean reverting valuations. I'm just saying that from these starting yields, uh, things will be tough. And the important thing is that this is not just for bonds. It's, it's for, you know, every asset has its own jargon, but... But for equities, you can look at Schiller earnings yield. For um, housing, you can look at uh, rental yields, private equity, EBITDA or EV, <laughs> again, jargon, jargon. But but everything looks expensive compared to its own history. And that those valuations, sort of, you can flip it to, or invert it, and that tells you the starting yield. And that's, that's, um, that is the, um, I don't know, I think making it sure that at some horizon this trouble will catch us. However, now the interesting and challenging question is that many, many of us prognosticators were highlighting these ideas 10 years ago. And mm. since then we have had even lower yields. And as a result, we have had quite solid returns. In particular, US equities have had this fantastic decay. Yeah. And uh, and it's really, like I, I, I tend to then say that you have to, even as an equity investor, you have to learn some of the bond logic that lower required yields give you some windfall gains that boost your realized performance for a while, but they store trouble for the future. Essentially, you are borrowing returns for the future by those higher valuations. And in the last decade, um, S&P 500, um, Cape, the Schiller PE, almost doubled from 20 to 40. So, so. That's the story of why we had those high, high realized returns. Um, and that's why the forecasts were so wrong. For, for the forecast to be wrong again for next year, you would have to get even more richening and some, of, some other benign things, maybe again, some positive growth surprises, low inflation and so on, things that seem pretty unlikely today. So your warning of lower expected returns, can you quantify that? Can you put a figure on the sort of 
return that we could expect, say, I don't know, from a 60-40 portfolio going forward compared with what we've seen? Yeah, 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 with, with, with lots of caveats. But yes, so we definitely give, po- and the book also gives point estimates on this. And, and, uh, and, but we, we do like to often like put some whiskers or uncertainty bands around them. I don't do that now in the book. I just do it verbally telling that, that we, we have to be humble even about 10-year forecasts. And again, last decade is a good case in point how, how you have to do that. But, but, but so if you look at some yield-based measures what, what like ec- for equities, what kind of expected real return you should, you should get. And for government bonds, this is easier. You just look at the yield minus some inflation expectations. Um, the long-run story for a 60-40 portfolio was 4 or 5% real expected return, closer to 5% actually in 1900s. And that was both promised and delivered in reality. And then in the last 20 years, the expected returns have been coming down, 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 down. Uh, real yields for all assets have been falling, including now 60-40 then. Um, but that has meant that realized returns, again, have been benign. And there's, again, danger then with the rear view mirror that you look at those past returns and not the starting yields. And then with the rear view mirror, you think that, oh, everything is fine. But but from starting yields, we have gone below 2%. So from that 4 or 5% expected real, we are, I don't know, by, by some measures, we were at 1.5%. So roughly speaking, you can think sort of something close to 3% for equities and something slightly negative for for government bonds. And that gives them uh, one and a half real. And, and obviously, that that's a tough anchor uh, for the future. So there's clearly a large element of educated guesswork uh, about all of these questions. But, but one final sort of question regarding this this period of lower uh, returns I, I, I would ask you about um, would be, you know, how long is it going to last for? I mean, after all, you know, if, if say, there's a, a crash tomorrow, I'm not, I'm not suggesting for a minute there's going to be, but let's say that, I don't know, markets fall 40% uh, in a few days, um, then suddenly future expected returns look pretty good uh, again. Um so, yeah, is is yeah. this something that's going to go on for decades? I mean, we're talking about the rest of our rest of our lives, Auntie, or, or what? Yeah. So the part part of this is again uncertain, uncertain. But I I I'd wanna maybe differentiate here between short term and long term. Like I I often I say this that I don't know whether the low expected returns will materialize in slow pain or fast pain. Mm. And the fast pain would be sort of the crash, and then it would sort of solve, I mean, in a very painful way, it would solve the problem and so on. But, but I think we have got such low starting yields that I, I think that even if we had that, that crash, it probably wouldn't be so bad that it would solve the long-run problem. So, so mm. let, let me just say that I, normally I am cautious about this short-term t- tactical timing. I already alluded to that. But... It is true that stars are aligning sort of better than I, I, I really recall uh, with the combination of rich valuations and Fed tightening inflation problems, geog- geopolitical problems and so on, uh, to be bearish on equity markets in 2022. And I'm, I am <laughs> thinking a little of this kind of wily E. Coyote type of situation where, where, where things really like start to look bad, but markets don't quite get it, and you know, maybe gravity will come there. But so, so I do think that that there's 
vulnerability near term, but that's more, you know, you know, sort of discretionary opinion from mm. my books themes, which are very long term. I would say that that it's unlikely that that we will will get such a big increase at, for example, the 60-40, that we would go from that one and a half percent. It has risen to maybe, I don't know, 1.7, 1.8 now. We are still below two based on the, the simple metrics I use there. Mm-hmm. And um, and then if 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 that if we, if we get a meaningful crash, that might get us to two and a half, three. Getting to four or something, I think, is, is we are talking of such ugly scenarios that we really don't want to imagine that. And then why why don't I think also we, we don't get there if I have to pick sort of fundamental story why we are in this world, it, it, it is around this idea of savings glut, which has been like 20 years, uh, like it could be savings glut from emerging markets, it could be from the uh, pension savers, it can be from the wealthy um, who have got all higher savings rates. And and that that is probably something that's not immediately going away. Or, or so So therefore, I think that it could be a... If I'd have to pick, it would be a combination that sometime, sometime maybe this year or, or soon enough, we will get some of that fast pain um, and somewhat higher expected returns, but not enough to get us out of that slow pain scenario of stingy coupons and dividends still being there and no more windfall gains that we were getting, you know, for decades getting those repricing advantages. I think that's over and it might even be the other way around. So, so you, you know... It's it's a Cassandra story. I'll I'll get more positive on on what we can do about it, but but I'm I think that the that. picture is pretty bleak. <laughs> okay. Now your personal focus at at AQR is on advising institutional investors. Um, you know, I, I'm guessing this low return environment is a real challenge for institutional investors because, as we know, a lot of pension funds around the world, certainly here in the UK, are underfunded. You know, they 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 need to reach for, for higher returns, if you like, and, and yet the evidence shows that they're probably going to get lower returns and, and certainly unless they take uh, more, more, more risk. You know, how, how much of a challenge is this low return environment to institutions? Um, and, and how, in your experience, are they responding to it? Yeah, so this is, um, I, I do think that as, as one exception, the corporate corporate pension plans who have been un, which have been underfunded and increasingly have had some good experiences in the last one and a half years now with yields yields rising and equity still doing well. So they they are getting a bit better situation. So they may be running out like this is you know that uh, leaving leaving the field of defined benefits and letting 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 employees take care of themselves. So that's that's sort of one. This is not not a good collective answer, but this is this is something that. Conservative investors have have chosen to do that. Most investors have done the other thing. They have basically decided to take more risk. They recognize the challenge, um, most of them anyway, but but they don't have what I would call, they don't have the serenity to accept the low low expected returns and reduce spending plans meaningfully. Instead, they rather say that, okay, whatever, I want to get what I'm used to getting. I want to, I, I, I need to get the, 4% 4% real or 7% nominal or whatever it is, even in this world. So let's take more risk. Um, and by the way, this this kind of reaching for yield I mentioned in the book, it, ha- it is a classic response, nothing new under the sun. Mm. It was done in Holland in 1750s. It was done in Britain in 1850s. It was done in US in 1950s. So 
you know, this is like I, I call this like version of Saint Augustine's prayer: "Dear Lord, let me become virtuous, but not quite yet." So, <laughs> so, so they just they, they they want to get out of the situation by taking more risk and not get the consequences. But of course, there are potential consequences, and and that's sort of that's something that uh, uh, does worry me. Um, but but so and then how do they do this reaching for yield or reaching for higher returns there some some boost equities go down the credit curve add maybe some factor exposures but clearly recently the most common approach has been to add some illiquid investments such as private equity so anti uh, briefly what are the most reliable evidence-based sources of, of long-run returns, you know, a, a, apart from, you know, the, the obvious equity premium, if you like. Yeah. And, and I think that is, so equity premium is the most solid. I think it's, there's, there are other, other premia which have got almost as good evidence but, but equities will have some other advantages, you know, conventionality, embedded leverage, um, such, a, such a history that people will believe, and, and theory, I think, is better than on anything else. So, so I, th- I think it's understandable that, that, that with the same evidence, there is more beliefs in equities. And I, I, I often say that only, only equities are forgiven a losing decade, everything else. Uh, risk sort of losing their investors with a, with a uh, bad decade. But the flip side is really that there are some other asset class premium, again, like pretty decent duration premium, credit premium, commodity premium, when you think of asset class premium. And then this style premium, value, momentum, carry, defensive, these types of styles have had very robust evidence in many different countries, many different asset classes over 100 years, sometimes 200 years. Um, but they do get their bad windows, and then it's a question whether it, people can stick with them, and 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 there they they are no match with equities. So, but maybe you know, like one one cliche is that is that uh, just the bad times are needed to to keep the premium there. Otherwise, it would be arbitraged away. Uh, I think Corey Hofstein says, "No pain, no premium." So, exactly uh, at the start of the book, you use an apple harvesting analogy uh, with an illustration to go with it yes. to explain you know, what investors tend to focus on typically and what they often ignore. Um, I, I found that uh, really an effective uh, analogy. To just talk us through that. This is a little abstract, but let me just tell you, there are apple harvesters there and, and, and the story goes that as, as if when seeking high expected returns, they were looking for the lushy apples at the top and they missed the low hanging fruit. How did they miss it? Well, not very good diversification when they left all the apples in one basket. Terrible risk management when they left a little girl under the ladder below one heavy apple harvester. And they had a pretty bad cost control when one person was working and one overseeing. So it's it's it's, it's a beautiful analogy. I loved it. and. Uh, and recommend checking it live. Uh, I, I do as well. Um, so, w- what are your thoughts on active and passive investing? And, and in your view, you know, does traditional active management still have a place? So, 
I, I do think that traditional active managers will have some role. I think they, they've been always too big and were able to charge too high fees. And as a result of investors learning about sort of their collective underperformance uh, with, with uh, decent fees, we got the trend of continuing outflows uh, into actually into, into a barbell, or at, at, so, you know, into index funds, into factor funds, into private equity, into, you know, into also higher, higher costing, uh, costing alternatives. So, um, so I, I think these trends will continue. And at some point, there's going to be enough, enough um, low hanging fruit for, for traditional active managers that they can justify whatever fees that they are charging then. And, you know, I think John Bogle was sort of, you know, making a guesstimate and said, what, what number could it be? Is it 85% passive? That's, that's what he and some others have thrown. But these are all guesstimates. But mm-hmm. I do think that eventually they are going to be a, a minority that, that can justify its role, you know, for for uh, research and price discovery purposes and uh, also um, earn some decent active return, at least not negative ones collectively. Now, AQR is obviously very closely associated with uh, factor investing. Um, I'm guessing you'll say that factor investing has a very big part to play in institutional portfolios going forward, particularly in view of this uh, lower return environment, if you like, what's your what's your view on 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 factor investing? I practice what I preach, or I preach what I what we practice, and and so so I, I definitely am a believer in them. But but I'll, I'll get back to in a moment to the qualifiers again. I you know I, I really try to be even-handed uh, always, and also in this book. So so I think it's it's. I think they they deserve a bigger role than they they currently do. Factors or styles became quite popular in mid 2010s, but but still I think they could be more popular. But they certainly lost quite a bit of the support when there was a bad performance window, uh, mm-hmm. especially 2018 to 20, mo- mostly to value oriented stock, se- stock selection strategies. Some others as well, but that was sort of at the heart heart of it, and um, and and so. So the, the positive story one could tell before and one can still tell, and I do tell in, in, in the book, is that the long-run empirical story is really quite compelling for these styles. Persistent over time, pervasive across countries, asset classes, robust across specifications. Um, and so, so that, that is great. But, but the flip side is that any style, any investment, but also any style, can suffer painfully long, bad windows. And then when those, when those happen... Any reasonable investor asks, how do I weigh between 100 years of data on paper compared to my own painful personal experience that, that we've lived through? And, and statisticians and real-world investors <laughs> give pretty different answers to that, that question then. And so, so, um, so the, my, I don't know, lesson and conclusion from, from this experience is that, that investors really should ask uh, well, they should educate them, uh, themselves and hopefully get more patience. But but really, they should they should ask with any investments. Uh, do I have enough uh, stickiness with this that I can I can ride it through some some bad years? And 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 again, I think we all learn this over time. And 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 I hope that some investors will will take the lesson in the future that yeah, like we can size certain 
allocations that are you know not too big that we we leave after after the, the classic two three bad years but 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 uh, but that we can we can ride and we can enjoy the benefits of this long run premium and the last thing i just say that was in some sense that was that was either long only or long short that i was talking about but with the long short version so alternative risk premia there's this in addition there is this exceptional diversification benefit that you are combining lots of close to zero correlated strategies and you can you can really get some uh, big advantages in that portfolio construction and then some of these styles can even be um, very good diversifiers and even slightly negatively correlated to equities perform well when equities are doing badly it's trend following and quality minus junk stock selection strategies have had those features so I think those are even today those are strategies that investors should should consider right right now but but investors whoever are considering this must recognize the challenges unconventional requiring leverage and shorting and lacking easy narratives not so easy to stick with us with equities so so that's my that's my pluses and minuses balanced and, and briefly should investors focus on a a small number of factors uh, i i'm 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 guessing you you say they sh- should because i mean there are there's a whole zoo of factors <laughs> out there um and, and i i assume as well yeah. you're saying that people should diversify across different factors as well yes and so you can diversify in two nice dimensions so one is across different factors or styles and then you can apply them in different asset classes so my own faith belief in these styles has certainly increased when i have learned when we have studied the same ideas in stock selection in country allocation in equities in bonds currencies um, commodities wherever we tend to find that the same core themes value momentum carry defensive they tend to work in the long run again have their disappointing but but this 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 gives both the dimension of diversification and it gives this sort of i don't know more faith at least at, at least to me that this is nothing overfitted here um so so that's that's good so and then to your question yes those those few styles are at the core of the things i believe if there's a factor zoo with hundreds of things then then i think lots of lots of it can be junk but but it's also that the the, the hundreds may be a I don't know misleading number because that that hundreds could could include I don't know let's say hundred variants of value momentum carry defensive and they may to to me they may all be all be fine basically playing the same theme in somewhat different ways and getting mild diversification doing that uh, so I, I think there's some exaggeration when people talk about factors or but 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 yes my my favorites are in this clearly in this group where i think there is increasingly a consensus that the evidence is just sort of um, too good to be data mined or overfitted by any means now we're seeing a clear trend towards um as as you said earlier more expensive uh, investments private equity venture capital investments for, for example particularly in the institutional investing space also also to a to a lesser extent in the retail space in, increasingly um as you said it's partly down to a growing realization of the of the futility if you like of of traditional uh, active stock picking and 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 market timing um but what what are your thoughts on on that 
So first, I understand the attractions, and and I think there's some true, again, evidence based, not as much as for styles because we have got much shorter histories. There is some some backing to that, but 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 really, I will emphasize that investors shouldn't expect that all the attractions come without a cost. So I'll, I'll elaborate a little on that. that like there's like one one thing that always irritated me was this idea that it seemed that those private assets were sort of living in a world um, not at all linked to the public assets with the lower expected returns and so on. Clearly, they were benefiting and they were anchored by it and they were getting repriced more expensive because of the same things that were happening to bonds and bonds and stocks. And mm-hmm. so, but but specifically, I would then say that, like when you think of um, I'll take para- private equity as an example. The popularity um, has really, it, it really shot up mid-2000s when David Swenson popularized the Yale model endowment model among institutional investors. And if I study historical data, and I show this in the book, the valuation gap between public and private equity narrowed quite meaningfully just around that time. And since then, we have had very narrow gap between uh, private and public equity and slimmer outperformance than was the case earlier. So which I think makes sense. And and yet investors I think have focused on this story that oh there is this long run long run outperformance that you can you can count on and I think it has already been coming down and probably will come down more related to this is that the inflows that have been getting even greater in the last couple of years, they prevent sort of the, I don't know, healthy fee pressure that might be there that we saw with hedge funds sometimes in the past. I mean, that fee pressure isn't really there, I think, with many of these private assets. It will come eventually when when sort of the performance disappointments show up, and that can be be quite a while. Uh, So that's, that's something. I do think that future net performance will disappoint, but anything above public assets could still be, you know, appreciated. And then there is this my sort of pet peeve, and uh, well, Cliff also has, has written. So, so basically, the illiquidity premium or discount. So there is this idea that um, that if you lock in your money for ten years, you should get some meaningful illiquidity premium. Um, however, the evidence is not so clear, and we do have, I think, a good good counter argument that any fair illiquidity premium we should require. Uh, may be offset by our collective desire for smooth returns. The lack of mark-to-market may eat up that illiquidity premium. Cliff even wonders whether it's an illiquidity discount by now. We have got too little data to say either way, but but again, I think logically and empirically this sort of makes sense. Don't expect too big illiquidity premium. The last possibility is that maybe there's not too much of illiquidity premium, but I will get the top managers. And there is there is this story, which is true that that there is much more dispersion among active managers in private assets than in public assets performance. However, um, it's pretty much a myth that you can more easily identify them in private equity. Maybe in venture capital, there is some of that data, but private equity buyouts, not not clear. So the alpha dispersion could bring you to the bottom quartile managers just as well as to the top quartile managers. Let's be humble about that. Exactly right. Towards the end of the book, you refer to what you call um, bad habits uh, on the one hand and good practices for investors on the other. Um, what would you say are the worst habits, if you like, that investors need to avoid? 
I think I'll name two. So one one is this multi-year return chasing and the flip side capitulations. I've already sort of talked about that sometimes called the premier bad habits, even for um, experienced investors. They may know it, but it's so hard to resist. And, and I, I, I write in the book about this, like uh, I try to be humble about it because it's right to be humble, uh, but but in, in so many ways. Anyway, so cultivating patience and consistency uh, there are some ways of trying to do that uh, individually and organizationally, and I think it's a it's a good quest for anybody. Like I think there's a I think most people would agree with with something I mentioned a couple of times in the book that inconsistently chasing uh, different good strategies may end up being worse than uh, sticking with a middling strategy. So this this this. Um, Inconsistency really can be, but I think Cliff puts it very nicely. Don't become a momentum investor at reversal horizons. So, so that's a typical three to five year horizon where where you tend to get some uh, uh, reversals. And so, so that's I think the premier one. But the, in addition, I would say as a, as a broader thing for I'm thinking of the uh, I don't know younger investors today and trading oriented investors. Overconfidence is sort of the I don't know the mother or I actually like there is a saying I think that pride or hubris is the father of all all seven deadly sins and overconfidence it's known by research to directly lead to overtrading but it indirectly contributes to all kinds of other vices that we have including in investing mm. and so if i if i tie those together I, I thought of it later that um i write about them in different chapters but then in my very last paragraphs in the book i talk i call for stable confidence not over not worry only about overconfidence but worry about cycles of over and underconfidence so stable mm. confidence sort of would solve both both of those challenges easier said than done and what about good practices what sort of things do investors need to do to achieve better outcomes yeah well, they often are, of course, flip sides of bad habits. And I mean, the, I, there are some nice cliches. So let me. So, so one one was David Kabiller said ten years ago to me that good investing results require both good investments and good investors. So, so I mainly talk about strategies, but I did at the end focus quite a bit on this on this. Uh, What's 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 a good investor? And it's it's preaching about patience over return chasing, humility over overconfidence, discipline over emotions. I I would add not everybody does, but I would add probabilistic thinking over storytelling. I got this sort of envy of storytellers. Like I, you know, my my book can't be I don't know the Michael Lewis or 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 many many others who who have got this his great stories. It is it's 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 mainly dealing with numbers and. Uh, and that's that's a disadvantage in some ways, uh, convincing people. Anyway, so I believe in aggressive diversification, which is again not much to do with storytelling. Uh, but 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 then then I say that you know like if I say harvest many different style premia, I I have become more humble about it. If I can't convince somebody that this is this is really sustainable, long long way to go, then they shouldn't follow my beliefs. Um, you know. Strategy is as good as as um, uh, it's only good if you can stick with it. Mm. So so that's 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 this this one one cliche we keep repeating and and I just worth saying once more and and again lessons of the last decade. Mm. Aggressive diversification. I I I love that phrase. Um, finally, 
Ante, you suggest in your conclusion that investors effectively face a choice in response to the low return environment. Either they take more risk or they keep their risk exposure pretty much the same as it as it has been and, and inevitably settle for, 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 for lower returns. Um, have you a preference for, for either of those strategies? Yeah, actually, so Jason Zweig just interviewed me for Wall Street Journal and, and he sort of pulled the third option there, which is, which is there in the text, which is sort of the contrarian timing. So, so there is a, so, so, so I say the two extremes are taking more risk because markets now offer less and, and we just want to keep earning what we are used to earning. Or then there is taking less risk because nearly everything looks expensive. And you may want to wait for fatter pitches. So that's that's what he took. And I don't have a really a strong view. I'm I am um, I, I like investors to consider the other side in in in, in what, whatever they are thinking of doing. So do do with do whatever you do with open eyes. If you are going with with more risk, recognize that you are doing it when valuations are exceptionally high, or if you are. Um, if you are relying on contrarian timing, I want to take less risk. Remember that it really has got pretty poor track record, even in the long run, but certainly in the last decade, it, it, it has not been helpful. So with this, so, you know, characteristically, um, I don't know, balance-seeking way, I have, uh, I think the middle middle way appeals to me. So mm. I think that you, you should consider both more risk and less risk. And, and, and if you feel strongly, go with either way. I would probably stick with the long run normal amount of risk and try to accept serenely that in today's world that implies lower returns and lower spending than in the in the past when we had the tailwinds. And then, you know, the book subtitle is um, telling us to do things as efficiently as possible, make the most when markets offer the least. Antti Ilmanen, thank you very much. And that's all from this episode of the Tebby podcast brought to you by Regis Media. Do you run an advice business? Whether it's marketing or educational content you're looking for, Regis Media can help. Just get in touch with us via the website at regismedia.com. That's regismedia.com. Until next time, from me, Robin Powell, goodbye.